If you would join me in turning to Exodus 29, which is the second half of our sermon passage for today. Now this is what you shall do to them, to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket, and bring them in the basket, and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments, and put on Aaron the coat, and the robe of the ephod, and the ephod, and the breastplate, and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head, and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them, and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull, then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails, and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram, and shall take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces, and wash its entrails and legs, and put them with its pieces and its head, and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. You shall also take the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the right thigh, for it is a ram of ordination, and one loaf of bread, and one cake of bread made with oil, and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. You shall put all these on the palms of Aaron, and on the palms of his sons, and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. Then you shall take them from their hands, and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering, as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord." You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved 
and the thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination, from what was Aaron's and his son's. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest, who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place, shall wear them seven days. You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration. But an outsider shall not eat of them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh for the ordination or of the bread remain until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days you shall ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hin of beaten oil, and a fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering, as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Good job, Corey and Kyle. Thanks for reading those for us. Well, I wonder who is your representative? I guess that depends on what kind of representative we're talking about, right? And what or whom that representative uh, represents us to. So if you're asking about congressional representatives, many of us are represented by either Congresswoman Jennifer Wexton in Virginia or Congressman Alex Mooney in West Virginia. See if you know those names. But if you're getting more global, perhaps, the nation in which we live is represented by different ambassadors to other nations. Terry Branstad in China, John Huntsman in Russia, Jonathan Cohen to the UN. Whether we know it or not, uh, we have men and women, by virtue of being in this country, that represent us around the world. 
But representation is not restricted merely to the political realm, right? So in your workplace, perhaps you at times send a delegation or people from your office to represent your office at a board meeting. Or if you're a mom or a dad, you recruit one of your kids to go and tell your spouse something important. Or if you're a kid, you recruit a sibling to go share bad news. We often make decisions and communicate by way of representation. But who represents us to God? If there's anything we've learned from the book of Exodus over the past year or so, it's that we can't just be chummy with God. He is overwhelmingly holy and above us. And we've rebelled against him, his creatures that have been made to honor and worship him. And so not only do we have a a creaturely divide where we have a hard time comprehending how we could ever have any sort of relationship with the being who created the universe, but we have beyond just a creaturely divide, a sin divide. God cannot condone or live with sin, and so he cannot condone or live with his people. He must judge it if he is good and righteous. So we need a representative. Who's going to go for us? In this book of Exodus, we've seen God, or remember the personal name for God, is Yahweh, represented in your English translations by the word LORD, all caps, Yahweh. We've seen him deliver the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. You've seen him lead them out with a a powerful hand into the wilderness. And really, this whole book so far, this exodus, this deliverance, this endurance through the wilderness, potential starvation and thirst, is for one thing, to make a covenant with them, to be their God, and to make them his people. And over the past few chapters, we've seen how God in his mercy has agreed to dwell with his people. And yet they sin, so how can he dwell in a place that is sinful or or surrounded with sin-filled people? Well, he has done a merciful thing by instructing his people to build him a house, a tabernacle, a holy place, a portable throne room so he can encamp alongside his people. But as we continue on in Exodus, we see the arrangements for this covenant house, this relationship, is not yet complete. So so we see the portable throne room constructed, or going to be constructed, this tabernacle. We see Mount Sinai brought down in kind of microcosm form. We've seen a couple weeks ago, Israel's only able to approach that throne room through blood, through the altar, through sacrifice. But now we wonder, as we approach chapters 28 and 29, who will approach? Who will represent? Well, in the chapters Corey read for us at the outset of the service and, and Kyle read for us just now, we see the installation of the priesthood. Men who will represent Israel to God, mediating the covenant between Yahweh and his people. These men will, chapter 28, be clothed in holiness, and chapter 29, devoted to holiness. So three things to organize our time together this morning from these two chapters. Let's first see the garments in chapter 28. 
the, the clothing of holiness. Second, in 29, the consecration of the priesthood, being devoted to God. And then third, the ultimate priest. So garments, consecration, ultimate priest. Let's start with the garments. So that's what we see all throughout Exodus 28. The priests who will represent Israel before God will have a specific wardrobe. Their clothes will be essential to their job. And that's not just Old Testament talk. I think we kind of understand that, right? I mean, people in our culture, some of you, have certain clothing for your jobs. So the zebras at basketball games are refs. Their uniform is there for a reason. Uh, the Marine has a dress uniform and, a, and other uniforms for other purposes. And anyone who, like me, has worn a red t-shirt inside a Target for any length of time has probably learned the hard way that that shirt in that store means you will be called out as an employee. Clothes matter. And here in Exodus, they matter especially for the one who will represent Israel before God. It's kind of like as we see the high priest get decked out in his attire in, 20, in chapter 28. It's, it's almost like seeing an astronaut suited up to venture into space. The tabernacle much more than space, is not a safe place. You need to go in prepared. You need the right clothes. So what are they? Well, there in verse 1, Yahweh tells Moses that once he descends the mountain, remember right now he's on the mountain with Yahweh for 40 days and 40 nights. Once that happens, he's going to need to come down, call Aaron and his sons to him, and then call, we'll see this again in a couple chapters, call those who especially have good skill in making clothing, they will come forward and they will make these holy priestly garments. In verse 4, he kind of lists out the major pieces of the wardrobe. A breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, a sash. And then follows some pretty intricate details about how these items will be made, starting with the ephod in verses 6 through 14. So while I was reading this, maybe you have tried the same thing. I think we've talked about this before. I, I tried to sketch out what this would look like, and I was way off. So just exactly what the ephod was and what it did, I think, still remains a mystery. So as I read it and trying to you know, sketch it out a little bit, I kind of envisioned like a, a thick turtleneck collar, <laughs> which nobody else agreed with. Uh, so I, when I read different Bible scholars on this passage, some compared it to a robe, which I think is legit because there actually is a robe attached to the ephod. I'm not sure if that's actually the ephod. Uh, others, believe it or not, compared it to a sports penny that you'd wear in a soccer scrimmage. So maybe like a half t-shirt. I don't know. Others said it was an apron. Others compared the robe and all of that to a poncho. You can start to see how we just really don't know what it is. It's something that belongs here right? But it's incredibly important. It would be made like all these items from the same material with, that this tabernacle was made of. And that's really important to note. So you see that in verse 5. You see those materials listed out, gold, yarn, linen, all the things that had just been made to make the holy place. They'd been used to make the holy of holies in the tabernacle. This is on purpose, the priests would wear the same sort of material as God's house. 
the representative to Yahweh for Israel would bear in his very clothing, his very attire, the same imagery of God's heavenly throne room, of Mount Sinai come down to meet God's people. Remember, the tabernacle was to be a portable Mount Sinai, a portable throne room for God, reflecting the, the blueprint given on the mountain and ultimately reflecting the heavenly throne room of God himself. And now the, the very clothing of the priesthood will reflect that. This is all-consuming stuff. One author, Tim Chester, says it this way. He says, it's as if the priests are the tabernacle in miniature. Which is crazy because the tabernacle was Sinai in miniature, and Sinai is kind of the heavenly throne room in miniature. You can see how God is condescending to his people, going all the way down. Chester continues, the tabernacle is the place in which Israel meets God, and the priest is the person in whom they meet God, and through whom they can come to meet God. Or as another scholar goes as far as to say, the priest himself was part of the tabernacle almost like another furnishing. There in verse 9, Yahweh commands for two onyx stones to be taken and put on the shoulders of the ephod. Each stone would be etched with six of the tribes of Israel, their names. And so it wouldn't just be kind of like an ethereal idea. It would be the concrete reality that the priest would actually take the people in with him to God's presence. Take them where they could not go. Take their names into God's throne room. Verse 12 of chapter 28, look there. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel, and Aaron shall bear their names before Yahweh on his two shoulders for remembrance. That's the ephod. Next, in verses 15 through 30, we see the instructions for the breastpiece. Uh, you typically kind of probably think of like a breastplate, right? Some sort of armor or coat of mail. This isn't like that. The breastpiece would only cover a small portion of the chest of the priest. It would be small. It would be nine by nine inches. Basically, the span is roughly nine inches. So an exact square on the chest of the high priest, like the Holy of Holies. And you see how the priest is like a walking tabernacle. But on the breastpiece, much like the shoulder stones of the ephod, would be four rows of precious stones, representing again the 12 tribes of Israel. Those stones are listed out in verses 17 through 20. The breastpiece would then be connected to the ephod itself. And in verse 29, we see that in all of this, Aaron now can bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place, to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. Aaron's shoulders will bear the names of Israel, and his heart will be covered by the tribes of Israel. The representation is thick. It's covering his body. Aaron will be Israel's representative, their go-between, connecting them to Yahweh. There in verse 30, we see the breastpiece will contain these mysterious items called the Urim and the Thummim. Uh, these items, you thought the ephod was mysterious. These are even more mysterious. We don't know exactly what they were. Some think they were used, I don't know if they looked like dice, but they were used as dice, perhaps. 
so that when you prayed and, and the Lord would reveal his will in the, the color or whatever that was shown by these two items. But all that we know, especially as you read up into First and Second Samuel, you'll see David use these, and they're used to give direction from Yahweh directly to kind of a corporate decision Israel needs to make. God will show his will through the Urim and the Thummim, and these will be stored in the breastpiece of judgment. And so verse 30, Aaron will bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. All right, there in verses 31 through 35, we continue and we see the robe. It's to be made of one piece with a, a collared opening for the priest's head. On its hem will be alternating uh, pomegranates made of yarn, perhaps kind of another reflection of the Garden of Eden. And, and a bell made of gold. So bell, pomegranate, bell, pomegranate. Yahweh says, and it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. Now, there's different, again, opinions on why, why the priest would need to make noise. Some think it's so that people could still hear him moving around inside the Holy of Holies. One of you that I hadn't thought much about and I think makes a lot of sense is just the symbolism of this, the significance of this. Only the guy wearing the bells can go to God. And so remember, reminding of, to all the people who hear it that only he can come before the Lord. So while everyone else would be prohibited from entrance to the Holy of Holies on pain of death, this sort of ringing robe of the high priest would remind all, invite, all involved that, that God's consecrated one can come and no one else. The clothing, again, makes it exceedingly clear how dangerous it is for sinful people to be in such close communion and proximity to a holy God. And finally there in verses 36 to 38, we see a, a medallion of sorts is made for Aaron's turban that says, Holy to Yahweh. And then the chapter wraps up in verse 39 with a few more articles of clothing, including the underwear of the priest, which you might snicker at, and rightfully so. But think about it. Think about how the tabernacle was a reflection of the Garden of Eden and what needed to happen when God's people sinned in the Garden of Eden. They had to be clothed. Their nakedness was a shame to them. Even now, God's people in sort of a, a, an, old, an exodus rendition of Eden will need to cover themselves up for their sin. So this priestly wardrobe would be essential for God's priesthood. What about the priest himself, though? Well, that's the next thing we see. We see once the priest is decked out, we see him actually consecrated to Yahweh. So look at now in chapter 29. So we move past the priestly attire and we enter this sort of really detailed procedure for consecrating or devoting the priesthood to the service of Yahweh. Uh, there in verse 1, Yahweh tells Moses that the priests will need to bring supplies, a bull, two rams, bread, cakes, wafers made from unleavened bread. Uh, the priests will then be brought to the entrance of the tabernacle in verse 4. They'll be washed entirely with water, cleanse of, uh, signifying kind of a, a cleansing. But that's just the beginning, folks. The, the entire process will go on for a week. It's a serious thing to be a priest of God. After Aaron is clothed, there in verse 7, he's going to be anointed with oil, and then the sacrifices will start. Uh, verses 10 through 14, we see the first sacrifice. This is the bull. This is a sin offering. In verse 10, Aaron and his sons lay their hands on the bull 
showing that the bull now represents their sin. And then that bull is taken and killed, what their sin deserves. And the altar is doused with their blood, with the bull's blood. After much of the bull is burned with fire, the rest is taken outside the camp and disposed of. Something else that points us ahead to Christ. If you look at Hebrews 13 later, Christ was also taken outside the camp. Next, in verses 18 through, 15 through 18, the, the other ram, the second ram, will be offered as a burnt offering. Or this is the first ram, sorry. The first ram will be offered as a burnt offering, atoning for the sins of Aaron and his sons. Again, they're going to lay their hands on it, and it will be consumed entirely as what Yahweh says is the pleasing aroma to his nose. Yahweh is delighted when the sins of his people are atoned for. And forgiveness is secured. It's something that pleases him. And then in verses 19 and following, we see that second ram. And and a ram that Yahweh calls a ram of ordination. So kind of these priests being ordained or consecrated to their ministry. It seems like there are two things kind of going on with this ram. This ram has a lot more details going on with it. So two things are in view. The cleansing of the priests and their complete dedication to God. So the priests are both going to be washed and then consecrated to Yahweh. And notice that this seems to be some sort of fellowship offering, peace offering. The priests themselves, unlike the other offerings, are going to eat with this one. They're going to eat of the offering. They're going to eat of this animal that's been given to God. This brings back the idea of eating with God as a way of kind of showing the, symbol, the symbolism of the covenant. So remember back to chapter 24, remember that? Where God is holy, he's up on the mountain, the, the terms of the covenant are read, blood is shed, it's ratified, and then the certain heads of Israel are brought up and eat with God. Some of that is still being echoed here as the priests share fellowship with Yahweh. So the priests will be cleansed entirely. I think that's part of the reason blood is applied to their ears and their thumbs and their big toes, kind of symbolizing the whole body being cleansed before God so they can be consecrated to him. This will be the job of the priests only, and it will be a restricted access job. So those of you with with security clearances, sorry, I think the priests have a little one-up on you. They need to be totally gone through this procedure, and only they will be able to go before God. It's going to be a high-risk job, but the results, the fruits, the rewards of the job will be a maintenance of the covenant fellowship with God. And there at the end of chapter 29, starting in verse 43, we see what will be kind of this regular rhythm of sacrifice. A lamb in the morning, a lamb in the evening, a lamb in the morning, a lamb in the evening. Yahweh says, There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. These are covenant terms. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh their God. This is why Exodus happened. This is some of the most boring reading in Exodus, but this is actually the climax. 
This is the high point of God's covenant grace to his people. Enslaved, brought out, wandering, and now made the people of God. Through sacrifice and mediation, God will dwell and meet with them. This will be how sinful man can meet with a holy God. But if you look around the room this morning, you're not going to smell any pleasing aromas. You'll notice this auditorium doesn't look like a slaughterhouse, and that's good, or else we'd be kicked out of here. Sin deserves blood sacrifice. That's what we've seen throughout Exodus. Sin is so serious, it deserves death, and death means the shedding of blood. But if that's the case, where's the blood? Where's the blood here? How can we approach God? This is what we've been doing all morning, coming into his presence, singing his praises, hearing from his word. You didn't bring a burnt offering, right? All of these things are foreshadowing a greater offering, a greater priest. So finally, let's, let's think about how these chapters point us to the ultimate priest. See, this Old Testament high priest, starting with Aaron and then going on to his sons, is the representative of God's people. He literally carries them into God's presence. I love how Alec Mateer is older scholar of the Bible says they would only be able to enter because they rested on the priest. But the office of of the Old Testament priest was just a placeholder, church. It was given for a time, but it was meant to be superseded. God had in mind a better priest, a better priesthood, a better covenant, and this was just here to prepare his people for that. Earlier, our brother Jim read for us from Hebrews chapter 9. And indeed, the entire 13 chapters of the book of Hebrews is all about this, all about the old priesthood of Aaron and what that fulfilled for a, for a little while, but in the end couldn't finish the job. And then showing that something better, something more powerful, something more effective has come. In chapter 9, of Hebrews, the, the author at the beginning there, we didn't read that, but at the beginning of chapter 9, he kind of lays out the priestly functions we just looked at in Exodus 28 and 29 and, and kind of are fleshed out even more in the book of Leviticus. This priest will perform ritual duties. He'll go into the Holy of Holies once a year to offer atonement with that ephod. But then at the beginning of Hebrews 9, you see the bad news. A couple verses in. The author of Hebrews says, according to this arrangement, so according to all that we've just looked at in 28 and 29 of Exodus, according to all this detailed, intricate work that God is giving to Moses and Aaron to fulfill, according to that, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience. These sacrifices are going to accomplish something, but they won't be able to accomplish everything. See, the old priesthood was weak. But then verse 11 of Hebrews 9, and we see that glorious switch, that shift. But, but when Christ appeared as a high priest, then through the greater and more perfect tent or tabernacle, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats 
and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ? How much more? The Aaron and the Old Testament priesthood, they were commissioned as Israel's representatives to God, but before they could atone for the people's sins, they needed to worry about their own. They needed to atone for their own. They were sinful. Jesus had no sin of his own to atone for. Aaron and the Old Testament priests, they offered sacrifices daily, morning and evening in perpetuity. Jesus, once and for all, offered up himself. Aaron and the Old Testament priests, they offered up animals, regular sacrifices for sin. Jesus shed his own blood for sin. Aaron and the Old Testament priests entered a tabernacle made with human hands. Jesus entered the heavenly throne room of God. Aaron and the Old Testament priests maintained a temporary forgiveness. Jesus secured an eternal redemption. Church, who is your representative before God? It has to be Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate high priest who entered the Holy of Holies with your names. Not merely on his shoulders, but on his heart. And when he died to take your sin and fully and finally atone for it, the gospel writers tell us that the, the veil that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies was torn in two, never to be sewed together again. Our great high priest has done what none of us could do. He's taken our sins on himself so we have entrance before God. I love how the pastor, Tony Morita, says this. He says, Jesus, the Son of God, represents us. Instead of stones on his shoulders, he carried a cross on his shoulders. He carried our names not on a breastpiece but on his heart, for we are in Christ. You're here and you're not a Christian. Your sin separates you from God. God is not whoever you like him to be. God is the one he has revealed himself to be. He is holy. He will not change. Your sin, just like Israel's, is rebellion against him and deserves death. But in his mercy, God has sent a priest to take your sin and death on himself. Jesus has gone where you couldn't go. Trust in him. Cast your sin on him and be restored to God. If you have questions about that, we'd love to talk to you more about that later. And dear brother and sister in Christ, only Aaron could go into the Holy of Holies. And most of you have heard this before, but listen again with fresh ears. The door is wide open for you now. You don't have to be Aaron. The door is wide open for anyone in Christ, anyone in the high priest, to boldly enter the throne room of God. Access is unrestricted to those who belong to Jesus. You don't need like, a, a, like an eyeball test or like one of those Mission Impossible scanners or whatever to get in. You need to belong to Christ, trusting in him and what he's done for you. You don't need to follow a ritual. You don't need to follow some religious regimen. 
You need to place your trust in the great high priest and then boldly, directly pray to God as your father. Your father. You've been adopted through Jesus. You don't need human priests anymore. I'm not a priest, thank God. I'm merely attempting to lead you closer to Christ as an under-shepherd of his. You all are the priests. You have all the priestly access you need already. Are you living in that? Are you running to God in prayer? Are you meditating on his truth and, and asking him intimately to give you a greater love for him? Nobody can give a better application of Exodus 28 and 29 and the gospel fulfillment of those texts than the author of Hebrews chapter 4. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Therefore, let us hold fast our confession. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The mercy seat is open, church. It's open right now. A few minutes before noon, April 28th. The Holy of Holies is open. Draw near. Pull up a chair. Pour your heart out to God. In all reverence and joy. The amazing truth is that we are all now priests to God. In Christ, We all have access only Aaron used to have. We can boldly and humbly walk into God's presence through our representative who stands always before God for us. As priests, we can intercede for one another. While Jesus intercedes for us, our names are with him. He won't let us go. So who's your representative? Who do you rely on for relationship with God? When you feel like you have dropped the ball and your holiness streak is kind of coming to an end, who is it that you trust to bring you back into relationship with God? Is it you buckling down and working harder or is it the priest who has assured you of entrance by his blood? The Irish hymn writer Charity Lees Bancroft told us who she trusted in. She wrote, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Let's pray. Lord, what we've been doing this morning corporately as a church, what we're doing even right now this second, is because of our great high priest. How dare we? What kind of gall do we have to come into your presence this morning and sing your praise without the shed blood and the mediatory representation of our great high priest? So, Lord, give us renewed joy in the life we have within the veil, in your presence, never leaving, by grace through faith. Amen.